Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is one of the most accomplished screen and television writers working in the world. He's an Academy Award winner, a multiple Emmy Award winner. You know films like Gosford Park, you know Downton Abbey, the Titanic series. He has a new movie that'll be in theaters this Friday called The Chaperone that is a wonderful film with great performances. And uh, Julian Fellows, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for asking me. No, what a, what a delight. So there's this quote in, early on, um, certainly within the first three quarters of The Chaperone, where the, the young girl who's being squired to uh, New York says, historical fiction bores me. All these rules and manners seems so fake. And, <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> and sir, so, you know, it reminded me of, uh, I don't watch Woody Allen's movies anymore, it reminded me of Stardust Memories when they all keep coming up to him and talking about how much they liked his younger, funnier pictures. And what I'm curious about is, if it's not typical of you to put something that meta in, in your work. So were you consciously sort of raising an eyebrow to the audience, to the, was that in the book? I think it's in the book, but it made me laugh. And, uh, I, I, you know, I think all of our lives are a series of different chapters. And there are times in your life when you're interested in this and you're interested in that. Louise in the movie is young. She's just becoming a woman. She's beginning to find her power. She's beginning to find her ability. I think one of the great liberating moments in any of our lives, actually, is when you finally discover that you're good at something because you've gone through all that initial bit thinking, Jesus, am I good at anything? And then suddenly you get something you can do. You can run. You can write. You can dance. It doesn't matter what it yes. is. And that is the phase where you think, what does she want with historical fiction? Y- yes, but what I'm, what I'm thinking about is, yes, what does she want with historical fiction? But, but also, one can't put something that winking in without being aware of it. <laughs> and so because you're the foremost purveyor of, uh, and I know you've done other things, but you are, the, you are the person who's most thought of when we think of this kind of work. And, and here, when I think about the work that my partner Dave and I do, you, you find after 20 years that even though you want to say we've done different things than we can, you're dr- we are drawn again and again to a certain kind of character. I don't know why. I, I've, I've tried to examine it a little bit, but we are. So, but what draws you here? What is it about the constraint of manners and mores that you find lends itself so to drama? And how do you manage to celebrate? And this is something I think is in so much of your work that fascinates me. You're able to celebrate both those who hew to order and those who chafe against. And so you also raise these questions of propriety versus modernity in much of your work. And if you could talk a bit about, you're in the House of Lords, if you could talk a bit about how you frame those questions for yourself as an artist. In a way, I can't ever really decide in myself. Am I comforted by order? Do I like routine, manners? Do I like to be told, come for dinner on Thursday, wear black tie, because someone else is casual chic. What is casual chic? I don't know what casual chic is. As far as I'm concerned, casual chic is my wife on the telephone for 45 minutes. (laughs) And I think there are moments when you think to live in one of those ordered societies must have been so easy compared essentially now to having to make up your own day. I mean, in California, if you say to someone, do you want to have lunch on Thursday? They say, yeah, what time should we meet? And you want to say, well, lunchtime. But there is no such thing. If you said, let's meet at 11.30, let's meet at 2, that either would be fine. Sure. And, And then again, 
I rather admire people who live outside the rules, who reinvent their own lives. Those people who wake up and they were born into a certain way of life, into an economic group, into a class, whatever you call it. And at a certain point, they suddenly think this, you know, this isn't the life I want. This isn't for me. I want something much better than this. Do I admire that? Yes, I certainly do. So I have these completely conflicting impulses, really, that I play out in my work. It's fascinating that an artist would be so drawn to order because you don't render those worlds as easy to live in. You render those worlds as complicated to live in, as you always, it seems to me, you often have a character who's aware of the absurdity, but for some reason has a moral code that doesn't allow them to break out as they'd like. And yes, it's, for the viewer, we always put, I think we probably put you, whether that character's a woman or a man, in that spot. But you don't seem to have been constrained by limits. Well, I think I've been constrained by some limits. We won't go into all of them on the radio. But um, no, I mean, I think I do feel uh, that it is easier to have rules, but it is also more constraining. And you have to decide in your own life do I want to live my own way? I mean, that's a tiring decision to say, I'm going to live my own way. It's not going to be like anyone else's. I'm going to yes. make my own rules. That's very tiring compared to just saying, I'll be there on Friday at four o'clock in my golfing outfit. Although that lends itself to ennui, right? The problem with that is ennui shows up. Yes. And then um, and then it's almost not worth showing up on Friday at four because <laughs> you, you can't. And that, that is like this, this question I asked at the end about, Propriety versus modernity, because in it, 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 when we watch a period drama as you've rendered it, with with the uh, with the benefit of time, we can see. Well, of course, it had to move forward. Of course, a young lady has to be able to be who she is. Of course, an older lady has to be able to find out who she really is. But in our own times. Even as you say, it's refreshing to watch people. It's hard not to judge in our own times. Well, we are the generation above all others who are constantly saying, I'm not judgmental. I don't judge. That's funny. We judge more than anyone. On all sides. In the old days, as long as you turned up and did what was expected of you, nobody wanted to know. Don't tell you had an uncle who was a, a, a natural bachelor and everyone left it at that. But now we've got to know everything and we've got to have an opinion. I mean, I think we're a very judgmental age. That has to do with constraint. But that, right, that, that one, the uncle bachelor, that, what that was code for was a gay uncle. And those constraints uh, for, the, for the uncle, it turned out to be intolerable, it seems. I think it was... Intolerable for some people. I mean, some people yes. have always known how to live their own life within the strictures of the society in which they're living. Yes. And whether they were in Soviet Russia in the 1950s or whether they're in London in the 1890s, you know, somehow they find their way through. Yes. Those people always interest me. They always make their they own They show path. up in your work. Yeah. They show up in my work. And, and I kind of love them. But one of the reasons I really wanted you on this podcast is because I so loved your BAFTA speech. I listened to the speech you made, and then I read it a couple of times. And I was so taken with the way you tell your story. Because, of course, you were one of these people in some way. Well. Whether, whether you were not one in terms of um, chafing against, uh, well, I think you are. Anyone who decides to become not only an artist, but a different kind of artist after they've achieved some sort of success. You know, I think of you in the backyard of that pool 
And I'm fascinated by what that guy thought, who that guy thought he was. I think at the beginning, uh, I sort of needed to be told who I was. I think when I was young and I was at university and I was what they used to then call rather laughably a Deb's Delight and I was doing the season and everything, I think I was sort of assuming a role because I could understand it and I thought, oh, I, I know what I do. If I'm this person, I do this and I wear that and I say the other. Um, and any kind of attempt to discover who I really was definitely came later. And then I made this rather strange decision. And if I think it was strange, you can imagine what my father That's thought. That's what I'm, yes, I'm quite uh, interested to, in that. To go on the stage. I mean, so clearly I was in some sense aware that I wasn't going to go into the foreign office, go into the city, become a banker, you know, all the things that people I knew were doing. I knew I wasn't going to do that. And one way out of it was to go in my head into the movies and to be a, a figure in the movies and, and living this kind of life. How did you know you didn't w want to be one of those people? Because a lot of people who listen to this podcast, and I want to set the stage. So when I'm referencing the pool, uh, after a career or in the midst of a career that had some successes but wasn't quite going as well as Julian wanted... He found himself, you found yourself in California at a pool. Your friends who were further along were giving you screenplays. You started to read them and, and slowly start to make some judgments about them. But, but even before, so that's where we're building to. We're building to this moment. A lot of people who listen to this podcast are people who, who somewhere in their mind, there's a, there's a little voice that's telling them there's this possibility to do something unconventional. How do you know, how did you know you weren't crazy? How did you know you weren't delusional? when you said the stage, like, and then later when you were at the pool, how do we know? Well, I didn't know I wasn't delusional at the beginning and, and my father certainly didn't know I wasn't delusional. And so he, he said to me, you know, I will put you through drama school, which was very good because he'd already taken me through Cambridge. I will put you through drama school, but then that's it. Not one more penny. He said, if you can't make this career work, we better find out sooner rather than later. Which of course, very draconian. I mean, we're very soft parents as a generation, but our parents were less soft. And, uh, I mean, they were very supportive. They would drive up through England to see me playing the butler and coming on with one line. They would yes. do all that, but they wouldn't give me any money. And so, of course, I was very challenged. That was uh, very much a gauntlet thrown down. Did you think it was a cudgel to try to push you back toward a straight life? Um... A bit. A bit. I mean, he wasn't hostile. I mean, I didn't come from a family of bankers and that kind of thing. All my ancestors were sailors and soldiers and farmers. Right. And since there wasn't any land left and nobody expected you to go into the army or the navy, there was a kind of open book. And we, we, weren't, we didn't have prescribed professions in that sense, but we had to make a success of it. And that was what he was afraid of. He didn't think I was good looking enough and talented That's enough to make a success. Yeah. Uh, and, and he let you know that. That is a difference in the generation that raised yeah. you. I would say I'm slightly younger. I'm 52. So my, my parents and my dad was a record producer. So they were much more, I mean, they would tell me when I stepped wrong and if I, uh, very often, but the general idea was, you're going to figure this out. We support you. Oh, yes. I was in a bit of the, we're going to support you. I'm not finding We're going to 
support this with our loving arms, you know. Well, they, they supported me with their showing up rather than their loving arm. My mother actually was different, really. My mother was a kind of anarchist. Ah. And she didn't really, she wasn't interested in all that other stuff. She, I mean, she enjoyed entertaining and she was a very good hostess and everything else. But I mean, really, she expected people to be interesting and amusing. And she didn't really have any other reason for asking them into the By house. By the way, fair. Yeah, oh, no, fair. no, fine. Come over and be interesting. And quite, you know, and she liked politicians and inventors and writers and just come mad, mad people. And so in a sense for her to have one of her sons wanted to go on the stage was, was much more believable and understandable. But she had to sort of carry my father with her. But, you know, there are plenty of people listening to this who've had to do something pretty similar. Uh, but then you have to prove the first person you have to convince yes. is yourself. Yes. And I always remember once I'd had a slightly bad run. I was pretty lucky, actually. I never had a second job. I never had waited. You were able to work as an actor right I, away. I worked as an actor and I, you know, pretty tough and quite ordinary parts, but nevertheless I did. But there was one time when I had quite a bad run for a bit. And then I went up for a series at the BBC being directed by Danny Boyle ah. and a very good show. And um, I think it was a four part or a six part, I forget now. And I came back and my agent rang me and said, yes, they're very interested in you for this part. And it's, you know, whatever his name was, Tomkins. And they're sending the scripts over now. Uh, and the scripts arrived by bike and I was reading them. And, and I thought, well, now they must have made a mistake because this Tompkins guy is one of the leads. Right. And I rang my agent back. I said, look, I don't think I am up for Tompkins because he's one of the four leads. So uh, can we find out the part they really want for me? So he was ringing back and says, no, it's Tompkins. And of course, I then thought, the person who has been holding up your career uh, is you. You realized it. So you did? You realized it in the moment? Yes. That's amazing. Most the person who doesn't don't. believe you're a leading player is you yourself. And then after that, things changed. Did you go get that part? I got the part. And you were I, Tompkins. I was Tompkins. By God. And, and it was a marvelous series. And it was Danny's last thing before he went into the movies. Right. And everything was great. But that moment was a very interesting one for me because for the first time, I didn't feel when I was selling my ability that I was trying to kind of do a deal, sell a pig in a poke, not let yes. them know how bad I was, you know. Uh, I, I felt, well, you know, maybe you've got something to sell that's worth buying. What a beautiful moment of insight. Oh, to, well, no, that was a big moment To be able me. to actually look at yourself and say, you know, you... You're the guy who's yeah. in your own way, which so many of us are all the time. You know, I started late also. I was 30 before we wrote our first script. Now, yours was, you, yours was a bit later still, but it felt late. Do you yes. know what I mean? Yes. Oh, no. With me, it felt. And also, it started by accident. No, I know. Because I, I had to fill in because we'd spent all the money. Yes, amazing. On a show. And well, when you were, we're going to get there. I want to get there, but I want to go to... Um, is it after the Danny Boyle thing or before that that you're in LA trying to be an actor and the jobs are going slowly oh no that was before that was before and I was living out there and that was when I first got interested in scripts and so you would start to read them but at that time you weren't did, was a was there some idea in your head that oh, I could tell these stories I know you I, I've often asked myself that I don't think there really was but I knew a lot of people who were doing better in the industry than I was. This wasn't hard. And it, some of them were working film directors and this kind of thing. Yes. 
and Peter Medak, for one. And he would give me a script and say, they've offered me this at Fox, but I don't know if I want to do it. And, and I would read it, and I would say, the first third is terrific. Then in the second, we don't care about the doctor, and if we're going to follow him, we need to care more. Right. And the last third doesn't make any sense at all. And I would do more and more and more of that. And then actors would ask me to read parts they'd offered, been offered. And, uh, and I gradually I thought, well, if all these people are asking me to do this, I must be quite good at analyzing scripts. Yes, so did your friends tell you that? Hey, you know, you were right about that or that? Yeah. Would they say, good job? Yeah, Thanks. I avoided that time. or I did it. That's right. And so that made you also think, well, wait, I, I might know this. Were you someone who studied people when you were young? When those people would come over to your house who would be entertaining that your mother was fascinated by, did you... When you look back on it, the way an actor or a writer, I mean, I now know, I was sort of imitating everybody. Yes. I was aware of the cons they were, I, I was even aware of the little cons they were working within the, the and when they were in the deception Yes, all that. And the deception of others and those marriages that are going yes. wrong, but they don't quite know how wrong they're going and all of that. I always loved all that. And you did and you noted it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And I know I didn't even know that there was anything... Um, I didn't know I was going to do about, anything yeah, with it. Well, I didn't even know there was anything different about noticing that no. stuff till m much, much later. But much now later. I know, oh, I was always a right. I was always back. I could, like you, I could take center stage if I had to and talk. But I was comfortable... Observing. Watching it and listening. Also, when I was being a young man in yes, the ballrooms of England, which still existed, um, I was very have, unimportant. You must have cut... Quite a dashing figure in those rooms. I was so undashing, I can't begin <laughs> no, to really? tell you. But I was a very unimportant guest. I was uh, there because they were short of men. I was, I was given Nanny's bedroom. You know, I was very unimportant. Short of men feels like a, a and, play from 1952. <laughs> you know, who can we get? Yes. You know, and because of that, nobody makes an effort. When you're at all successful, all your gags are funny. Everyone's loving you. All of that stuff. Yeah. But when you go back to before that time, when people only laugh at your joke if it's really funny, yes. uh, and nobody gives you an inch, that's when you really see how the game is being played, how it's working. When you see people making fools of themselves. Were you friends mostly with people of your own station? Well, at that time, I think, because, you know, at the beginning of your life, you pr practically only know people who are living a similar life to the one you're living. Although Cambridge changed that for me. Ah, yes. That was, a, that was a big step in my life where I first really came across people who were uh, completely differently conditioned to yes. me. And, and I think one of the great, why I so disagree with this modern thing of non-platforming and not listening to anyone whose opinion you disagree with, which I think is the greatest anti-intellectual movement of our time. And I disagree with it because when you go up to university or college, for most of us, it's the first chance you get to learn that what you thought were facts are only opinions. And they're only usually your parents' opinions or the opinions of people you're at school with or your friends. And that it is perfectly possible to be a sentient, intelligent human being and not think those same things and think very different things. And I didn't get that till Cambridge. And I started to have friends who were very different from me politically, different religiously, different 
in every way, socially, very different backgrounds. And you really. loved that. I that loved was, that. You and felt I, yourself coming alive. Yes, I loved that. And I never went back from that, actually. And from then on, I had a very variegated social life. Yeah, I, I'm a free speech absolutist. Uh, although I'm quite to the left of you politically, I think in certain ways. Yeah, but left or right doesn't really matter in that. Well, I'm, I'm a free speech absolutist, so that if, as as most colleges in America, um, if there's state money going to the school, which there almost always is here, except for you know a few of the Ivy League schools, but if there's any nexus, uh, you have to allow speech. The, the I, state I, can't. The state can't censor speech. This is not to debate this, but but. Uh, when my wife taught at Columbia, and she's a novelist, and, and she, I remember her talking about trying to tease this stuff out and feeling, well, what any, whatever anyone writes in a piece of fiction, we can't, we can't judge the author and, and try to censure them in a piece of fiction. On the other hand, the, the, isn't the problem, or it's, here's how I'd ask it to you, isn't the challenge, because this, by the way, goes to your themes of contemporary mores versus sort of the traditional ways that the world worked, isn't the challenge just that the way that the, the mission creep of all this, meaning it's not really that hard to get up in front of a classroom and say, hey, I'm going to talk about rape. In case, listen, I just want you to know if you've had a bad experience, I'm going to talk about it. You can leave or stay. Isn't the problem that it bleeds from there into many other things? Or do you feel like even saying that isn't necessary? I, I think if you have signed that you're going to give a talk about rape before... That's enough. Oh, yes. I, I don't think you have to jump out from behind a curtain and say, I'm going to talk about rape. I, because then you give people an element of choice. But the difficulty is, in all these areas, there is a degree. And that's what's so hard to legislate about. There are, for instance, political opinions that are offensive. Uh, and, you know, if someone is standing up and talking about the final solution or something, yes. you, this is offensive and people should not have to listen to this. But once that bleeds backwards and suddenly someone is talking about the capitalist system versus the state control system, that's offensive. Except, hey, it's the way half the countries in the world are operating. And somehow we've lost our ability to find a correct level where it is acceptable to disagree beyond this level and before that it's not accepted. Yes, it's become, I, I, it, it is a, something I wrestle with all the time. I have two kids in college, well, one kid who just graduated college, another in college, and I see this and I wrestle with it because I, from talking to them and their friends, I do understand both sides of this question. Um, but deplatforming, and I think that the, the side for free speech has, uh, is largely, in my opinion, correct. But um, on the other hand, you shouldn't be able to stand up at a college and defend the use of the N-word, necessarily. No. I, and I, use that word. I, I, you might be able to and use, you know, and, and decide, I can use that word. No, but you shouldn't not platform Jermaine Greer. Sure. I mean, you, I don't care what she said. The truth is that woman has done more for rights of women in the women's movement than practically anyone. And if her reward is to be non-platformed by a generation who haven't bothered to acquaint themselves with her writings, that seems to me to be absolutely idiotic. Well, everyone should have to do the work and do the reading and figure out. And if they disagree with her, come along. Right. Stick their hand up. Disagree with her. But I could see you writing about both sides of this with equal passion. I could see you writing about a young woman on campus who's decided 
this is like, you know, a hundred years, it was decided, no, this will not stand. And here are all the cultural reasons why it won't stand. And I believe you would be able to fill her heart with life as much as the professor's heart with life. Well, I hope so. I mean, we used to have something called a Downton argument. And with a Downton argument, you have to, one of them voiced their opinion and the audience had to think, that's right. And then the other one said their opinion and the audience thought, wait a minute. That's right. And you wanted them torn between both sides. And every time one of them spoke, they found themselves agreeing with them until the other one contradicted. As a writer, do you have to be able to inhabit in a real way both arguments or can you just intellectually do it? You personally. Personally, I think I have to kind of see their point of view. I mean, before that sounds too tough, my, my specialty, if you like, is reasonably decent people. I very seldom write people who are horrible off the scale. I mean, some of them are nicer than others. Sure. But some of them are more manipulative than others. Some of them are more manipulative and so on. But nevertheless, most of them are reasonably decent. Aren't evil. And, and so to inhabit them does not mean I'm going through some kind of moral contortion. Yeah, I mean, I have to inhabit terrible people a lot of the time and to write them. And you know, are people who, whose values are pretty far from mine... And I think that's just part of the fun of it, in a way, is getting inside those heads. Well, also, what does interest me, actually, even with evil, is the ordinariness of evil for people who are evil. Yes, Hannah Arendt and... I mean, we had a serial killer uh, in England who used to cut up his victims, put bits in the fridge, eat bits, put other bits down the lavatory. I mean, listen, all of it. But before that, he would kill them then he would put them in an armchair next to his, and together he and the corpse would watch Coronation Street. Oh, I mean, that's crazy, yes. I mean, But you like the what? sort of, right, you, you want to understand the sort of mundane aspect of I that. I just, sitting there, worrying about what Mavis is going to say, you know, I, I mean, yes. I, I, there are moments when I really am fascinated by that. Well, I, I want to, we'll move on, but uh, I love, have you seen that movie, it was an HBO film, Conspiracy, about the final solution, about being up at the Wannsee Conference? It's Stanley Tucci and Kenneth Branagh. No, I haven't you seen would, it. You would love it, because it's all about these guys sitting around, it's Branagh directed it, Tucci, Colin Firth, all the people you know, and I'm sure like, and they're just sitting around two hours having the conversation, and it's, uh, you would, I think you'd dig it, um, because it's about the banality, it's about the banality of evil and I mean so it, that it fascinates me that we always like when something terrible has happened like in Germany in the Second World War we like to restrict it to a few super evil people yes. who will then be put in prison or hanged or whatever happens and then that's kind of like it's done well of course it's not really done because hundreds tens thousands hundreds of thousands of people on some level or other were permitting this to go on were tolerating it and yet they're not all evil people somehow they talk themselves into it and they told themselves they had to talk yeah that have the good dinner have the conversation yeah. with music and like uh, the heinrich ball novel you know the clown is a great does a great job of talking about that stuff in in, in england Hey, let's talk about a new concept in eyewear. Warby Parker was founded with a rebellious spirit and a lofty goal to create boutique-quality eyewear at a revolutionary price point. A collaboration between four close friends, Warby Parker was conceived as an alternative to the overpriced and bland eyewear available today. I love their origin story. I've read about it a lot. It's 
fascinating how smart they were, and they found something completely useful. They circumvented traditional channels and engaged with customers directly through their website and retail stores. Warby Parker is able to provide high-quality, good-looking prescription eyewear at a fraction of the price. The Parker aesthetic is vintage-inspired with a contemporary twist. Every pair is custom-fit with anti-reflective polycarbonate prescription lenses. Available exclusively through Warby Parker's website and retail stores. Glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses. This is eyewear with a purpose. Almost 1 billion people worldwide lack access to glasses. It means that 15% of the global population cannot effectively learn or work, which is crazy. Look, glasses were invented 700 years ago. We should be on top of this. Warby Parker partners with nonprofits like Vision Spring to ensure that for every pair of glasses sold, a pair is distributed to someone in need. I mean, how awesome is that? We believe everyone has the right to see. They have a free home try-on program. You order five pairs of glasses and try them on for five days. There is no obligation to buy. Ships free and includes a prepaid return shipping label. Head to warbyparker.com slash moment to order your free home try-on today. Glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses. Lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. Blue light filtering lenses are now available. If you have an iPhone 10, make sure to download the app, the Warby Parker app, where you can use their brand new virtual try-on, allowing you to try on glasses, seeing the realistic color texture and size of each using just your phone. I've been in the Warby Park stores, I've been on the site, and I can't wait to wear these glasses. What a great thing, Warby Parker. When you were there in that situation, the career was going okay, you're reading these scripts, people are telling you you're good at it, you're starting to realize it. Very few of us would take the next step to say, well, I'm gonna, and I know you said producing first, but... Very few is, can you talk about where you were? Sort of set the stage for us of who you were, where you were, and what your interiority was like as you set out to do this stuff. And and then, yes, I know you wrote the thing because you were putting it back into a a position. But can you just talk about it a bit? Because I think it's useful. I I think it's useful to the person working in a lawyer's office wondering about the half hour a day to write. Like, uh, you know, where were you? I I had a bridging job, um, which was a, a series starring Anthony Hopkins called A Married Man. And um, this book had come out and uh, John Davis at ITV was trying to buy the rights and I had just bought them. I was this little independent guy and I had bought these rights two weeks before. How did you, what made you think to do that? I don't know. I read the book. I thought, this is wonderful. I bet this would be great television. Anyway, nobody had been interested. I bought them. Well, of course, the writer and his agent are spitting blood. I mean, suddenly oh, the guy comes along, he's got the television channel, all the resources, everything, and, and I own it. Right. And I thought, no, well, this, is, this is a lucky break. Did you buy it to star in originally? No, no, no. You no, bought it I as just, a producer. You I bought it thinking, I'm going to figure out how to I'm get this made. I'm going to be a producer. Okay, yeah, that's important. Anyway, I then d- did a deal with John. Uh, because I knew I couldn't get it made without that kind of help. But the deal was that I would be involved as a producer in the making of this show. And, right. and my interest would be working with the script. And they'd chosen a writer who was a good writer. Uh, and I started to work very closely on the scripts. I think there were six scripts with this writer. And as we were doing it, I felt... Actually, I had nothing against the writer who I thought was good, and the show was good, actually. But I thought, I could do this. That's the moment. 
that was that's the, the moment, moment you were like, I could, I actually, I, I could be doing that. I could be doing uh, one step ahead of this. Yeah. And then after that, and the show came out and it, and, and it was good. But then I started to work with a London producer called Eileen Maisel. And we were working on a script, again, with the right hand, again and again and again. Uh, and finally, Eileen said, why don't you take a crack at this? Ah. And I then wrote that script, which never got made. But then I wrote another script from scratch that never got made. But that was the script I wrote for Bob Balaban. Right. That, and that's Bob the one Balaban he brought, took me. That's the one he brought to Altman. To Robert Altman. Yeah. That's so it. that although in those interviews in the back of the magazine, the, you make these huge seven league boot strides. The truth is it's more no, incremental. I'm, I'm interested in the rigor. I will say, I always say to people, chasing your dream is fine, but you have to put in the rigor, the rigorous yeah. work that has to come. Yeah. Otherwise, it's all just a dream, right? That's the difference is the rigor. So... What are you, are you only writing at that time? Are you still auditioning? No, no, I was still acting. And of course, obviously, the moment I took my eye off the ball with acting, my career immediately improved oh, right, enormously. Sure. Yeah. So I was then suddenly in movies and did a Bond movie and a picture with Catherine Deneuve. And I was in a series and I was in, and I, then I was in a long running series on television for five years on British television. Right. And then I was writing, that was an overlap. Now period. that's interesting. And I imagine that you were then, I know they don't pay a fortune then, but I imagine you were kind of comfortable, like living a decent life. Yes, it could be worse, you know. I that's had a nice I'm... house in Knightsbridge. Everything was fine. That, that's what I'm saying. So how I did you... I was married. I had a baby by then. Often when people are in that spot, they stop, They sort of accept, oh, well, this is, this is great. What do you think it was that kept you churning? Was it that as you were writing these things, you wanted to solve this puzzle? Was it that you liked what you felt like when you were writing? Like what, what happened that made you decide, I'm going to do this lonely work? I think two, one is my wife, who by then had been married to me for about 10 years, now about 30, but 10 in those days, had always thought I was going to end up a writer. Why she okay. thought this, I don't know. Mine too, amazing. And so that was always in my head. I didn't quite know why she thought that. But the other was that very quickly in writing, I mean, in acting, I was the minister who said, you have three days, Mr. Bond, you know, <laughs> but I wasn't Mr. Bond. Right. Yes. And, uh, and, and I was trying yeah. to get a job on casualty. I was working on a Sunday night series called Monarch of the Glen. When I started writing, I was working for Altman. I was suddenly working for Scorsese. I was doing something, you know, all of this. But that was later, wasn't it? I mean, you well, said you'd written a few scripts that didn't. I'm t what kept you going when you would write a script? And even you, because you have this great ear and eye for it, were like, well, that one could be better. This one's good. That one could be better. Were you getting something out of it in the doing? I guess, were, did it feel more alive to you or the it, same well, as Well, yes, acting? but I did have periods, I remember, of thinking... Who am I trying to kid? Sure. Nothing is ever going to this happen. This is useful to hear because all of us feel that way. And someone as accomplished as you feeling that way gives comfort, I think. I remember lying back in the bath once and just saying, is it ever going to happen? Oh. And, and Emma said, yes, it's going to happen. And it's going to happen soon. And I thought, ooh. Oh, that's great. And then um, I was rung up by Balaban, I think about a month later. Amazing. That stuff's just, I mean, that's my favorite. Yeah. Those are my favorite things, right? You just decided, 
I have to press on somehow because that script still hasn't gotten made, right? That never the got script made. that Balaban showed Altman that never got has made. not gotten made, no. even though it changed your life. Changed my life. That's I always say that to young writers. Actually, you don't know what role a script may play in your life when they're writing it. They think this is a wonderful script. It'll get made. It'll change my life. But the truth is, most producers are looking for a writer to work on an idea they already have, and so you don't have to dig in if that script. Gets you the job to write the script they're looking for. It's done its work. It has served its turn in your life. As long as you, I'm asking you this, I'm not stating it, but but I would guess as long as when you get that assignment, you understand how to make that work. Well, I or do you think just take the job? There you. I mean, sometimes you just take the job. Let's not kid ourselves. But I think the major step you need to be a bit lucky. I mean, I was very lucky with Gosford. It, it made sense to you. I was interested in that period. I, when I was young, uh, I had known my great aunts, uh, one of whom was about ten years younger than Mary Crawley, right? Uh, older than Mary Crawley, and she had been married. Uh, you know, before the First World War, she lived that life. Thing. I knew her. She only you died when I was 21. Right. You Right. So you understood it. And I had it firsthand. And I understood all that. And I was interested how those houses worked and what this used to be the something. This used to be where they cleaned the lamps. This used... I'd grown up on used to be. And, and, and I knew all that stuff. And when this commission arrived to write... A film. It was very loose about a country house uh, involving a murder. Murder, yeah. And that was it. And I knew I could do it. I thought I know this stuff. But what I did do is because it was Altman, and I, I thought probably he had to be talked into this. And he, you know, he was very American. I mean, yes. Americana, and one was, of the most legendary American directors of of all time. Of all, he's with Paul Thomas Anderson would say like that's why he makes movies. And like, he was going right away from his own territory. Yeah. And and I knew this, and I thought what I want is when he gets the first draft of the script, he's going to open it thinking, hoo hoo, here goes nothing, and then he's going to read it, and the more he reads it, the more he's going to see it's an Altman movie. So I rushed out and I found every Altman movie I could I of the this. videos. I spent three days watching Altman movies. And that multi-arc narrative, which I later went on with for Downton. But, you know, you have some big arcs that go right over the picture. Some that are sold in three scenes. Well, yeah, look at California Split or um, Nashville. Or, and all of his movies have this and, idea. And I wanted him to see that that exact same structure was being played out at a shooting weekend in Gloucestershire. And so he read the script and he told me afterwards, actually, because I then I sent it in and I got this invitation to fly out to California to work on the script with him for uh, a few days. And um, that was the first moment of the whole process that I thought it might happen. Ah. I, I and did you allow excitement? Did you allow yourself to become excited? Because it doesn't. It seems like you try to tamp expectation down a bit. Well, but I, that was the first time. And he later told me that until he'd read the script, he never believed it would happen. So I love this moment. I really love it so much being my wife and I both writers and having uh, these Hollywood careers where it's up and down over and over again. So I just... I. I love this moment that you and your wife decided to fly you club class. Can you just talk about <laughs> it? You have for, done your research. Can you just talk about it a bit? Well, because it, it, for me, because now you're in the House of Lords and you're Julian Fellows and you've, you're, you're landed in every way imaginable. 
And it's important, I think, to understand that before Gosford Park, for which you won the Academy Award, you weren't sure you could afford to fly yourself to America in a way that would allow you to work. So can you tell the story? Well, I couldn't afford it, really. And um, we got the... See, I'd lived in California for a couple of years earlier on, and I'd acted a bit, and I'd enjoyed it, actually. I, people were supposed to say they didn't enjoy it, but I loved it. I had a great time. But when I left, I thought, the next time I come back to California, someone else is paying for my ticket. It's powerful. And I, I kept that. I, I didn't break it. But now I was being flown back. But, of course, I was being flown back third. Yes, and, all the way in the back coach when, yeah. You know, and, and, which is fine. Yes. And so we had this Normally and, fine. But from England to California is an incredible, I just want to, it's a 10-hour flight. And they'd promised you the hotel, right? And they said, you, this hotel, you have a day off. You won't be working until Thursday, you know, the usual. And Emma said, no, I think we should pay club for you to fly out. She said, I don't care about coming back. Coming back, you can hold on to the undercarriage. But going out, because if they want you to work straight away, you must have slept on the flight. Yes. And if you're at the back, you won't have slept at all. So we did. But it was a big thing for us. Yes, to put up that money and make that decision. Money. It was an investment. And what happened when you landed? I landed. They said, we're going straight to the studio straight now. Straight to meet Altman, Bob's right? Way to, yes. And you've got to drive yourself. We've got the rented car here. So I got off. I mean, that in itself. Oh, to the other side of the thing, right. And, and I got off. I had to drive there. We had to sit. I had to be absolutely on the button straight away. Uh, and because I had slept for about four hours on the flight, I was able to do I mean, it's great that you had that faith. You, you and your wife had that faith in you and were willing to take that. Like, I mean, a lot was stacked in your favor. But I could see how people could be cautious in that moment. But I tell you what it is. When you have a big chance when you're 24, yes. you, you blow it, but you think there'll be other big chances. Yes, but when you're 50. When you're 50, you know this is it. You've got to make this work because this is not going to happen again. And I think it's a completely different concentration, really. I understand this so well because we'd come off the biggest failures in our lives before Billions. And we had a movie that was a disaster. You've had the uh, director, didn't understand, you know, one of those things. We'd been fired from a show that we were supposed to run before we'd ever gotten to write a word. And it was, our agents had, our agents said, we're not sure you're hireable. And then we had to, yeah, it was one of those moments at 49 or 48. And then Dave and I started working on this script. And, and we knew, it. we wrote it on spec because we didn't want to pitch. We just wanted to, and I'll tell you that thing of knowing, wait, this can be really good. We can't, this is the shot. This is the one. This is the moment that it all goes this is the moment we worked 20 years to put ourselves in position for and so each step of the casting of each step of shooting it it was like we cannot fuck this up we have got to make it work because we were 50 i was i don't want to dave was 48 but i mean i was 50 and it was like we have to make this happen yeah so i fully understand well that was it that the adrenaline me. when you got to altman must have been amazing i had to make it work and uh, and you know happily it did work uh, and certainly for me, although I think Bob ought to have got the Oscar too, I've always felt that he he earned it and didn't get it, really. I mean, I don't mean to be rude to what Ron one, Howard's... What um, won um, that year? Beautiful, Beautiful Mind. Mind. There was no defeating that. But There was no defeating that juggernaut. I, I suppose. it was. That's what Hollywood... That, but I, I think mean, the film that's lived now of those two is Gosford, really. And that was Bob. 
But anyway, and, I mean, and these you, things, what did you know, it feel like the day Ron you Howard. walked? I love Ron Howard. Me too. I love Ron. What <laughs> What did you feel like the day Julian Fellows says, "Screw Ron"? No, he loves Ron Howard. What was the day like when you? I mean, you tell that funny story, of course. But what was where they told you not to talk so much? But when you walked on set at fifty of this movie you wrote with these real people and Robert Altman, did you give yourself a moment of grace to like go, huh? Uh, funnily enough, it was an earlier moment when we were running makeup and costume tests. Oh, yeah. And we'd gone out to the studio, and there we were. And of course, like always with Altman, he'd assembled a perfectly extraordinary cast, this time from English equity rather than American, but I mean, fantastically distinguished. And many of them playing quite small parts. I mean, it was, you know, uh, and we were there. And I did have a moment of sort of extraordinariness uh, of thinking I've spent so much of my life with my nose pressed flat against the glass yes. and suddenly I'm inside and behind the glass I'm in the shop and and that was a wonderful moment actually I, I wouldn't hide that it was a a, a relief you yes, know yes you could exhale the, and the thing about late success is it's a completely uh, schizophrenic response one part of you is saying what me are you sure i can't believe it and the other half is saying what took you so long right sure. and, and i had both of those simultaneously raging in my head how long did it take you to synthesize well then you're making a picture yes and, and then you vanish into the process of the if picture you're healthy yes and, and yes is that suitcase oh my god they've got that complete who put her in those shoes and all of that is going on don't shoot the shoes. Yes. Uh, and, and that just for 12 weeks. And Bob was very good about having me on the set, actually. I mean that. Because he wanted me there. He wanted me, um, he said himself, I, I want you to stop me making a mistake by accident. He said, if I want to make a mistake deliberately, that's my business. Oh, that's brilliant. And, and I want you there to stop. So you point out the mistakes and I'll decide. Yeah, we had our first movie, Rounders, the Matt Damon Edward Norton movie, the director said much the same. He said, as long, but in a very more, uh, he just said, be really careful of what you say to an actor. You can never take back what you say to an actor. So be really aware of it. Don't contradict me to the actors, but you guys understand this world. Tell me everything that I need to know quietly and don't become attached to your dialogue. And it was great. It allowed us to learn how to make a movie. It's an amazing thing to, yeah. to be able to be a part of. I want to go to Downton and then to the, the movie. Um, when you were doing Downton, and, you know, one thing that we have here in America is writer's rooms, and which, which is even useful if, if, you know, David and I write almost all of our show. We have one a writer named Adam Perlman who does a, a great job for us. But often we're the ones writing all the, what, what you see, right? But, but we can bounce our ideas off of people, and we find that invaluable. Even just them giving back an idea that doesn't work helps spur on some other thought. It seems to me you have to do all of it yourself, or you choose to do all of it yourself. And what, and I know you've written novels, but uh, who, do you bounce stuff off your, who, how do you check in with yourself as you're doing this stuff? What? Well, I don't really, I mean, I, I, I don't want to talk as if, it sounds as if I'm being superior about writer's rooms. Everything. I'm really interested in writer's rooms, and I would love to work in that way. And in fact, on a couple of projects now, I'm co-writing to see if I can co-write, because it's a, a different thing for me. And I find it very interesting, sometimes frustrating, but I mean, yeah, sure. everything's sometimes frustrating. But um, I couldn't find 
anyone else. We tried a, a little bit in the first series, but they couldn't find the voice of Danton. Yes, of course. has quite a distinctive voice. Now, some people can do this. Uh, I mean, uh, Matthew... Um, Weiner. Weiner. I was going to say Reiner, but Weiner, Weiner, whom I know and love as well. Yes. As much as I love Ron, Ron Howard. Ron Howard, yes. Um, well, he's a genius. Uh, he he managed with, with Mad Men to have a very distinctive style, which never f- faded, never... By rewriting the other writers, yeah. By rewriting the other writers. But, but nevertheless, he made it work with the writers' room, which I, I admire. But I never got that with... I think it's partly because the British writing attitude is slightly different and here people want to be in a writer's room and they watch a lot of episodes and try to find the voice in themselves and they do all this whereas the the British writer is more likely to say I'm writing an episode that's like no other episode that's funny and and what you want to say to them is but don't you understand we want an episode that's like every other episode just better but but just you know bright and, and funny and everyone loves it but um, anyway, in the end, I couldn't do it. But the only reason I did end up writing the whole of Downton was because I didn't know how not to. What about the plotting? The actual plotting of it? Would you plot ahead by yourself? Are you are you outlining seven episodes, or are you going one by one? No. What we do is for the whole series, we would have a couple of through lines of who ends up married to who, you know, that kind of thing. Who gets the estate. You know yeah, that going he, he, in. Yes. And you go in and you talk about it to ITV and you talk about the main stories. And once we had to drop one, actually, when um, uh, Cora was going to have her portrait painted and she was going to get involved with the painter and blah, blah, blah. And they said, this is a great story, but that's why we've just planned to have it in Mr. Selfridge. Oh, that's funny. Right, yes. And, and so we had to back off that. But um, then I would break those down into episodes and then I would add the lesser stories that people uh, I don't have to tell ITV beforehand and then uh, I would write them in uh, kind of note form yes at the bottom of my script so that as I write the script I'm writing through the notes and removing the as I write that story they're at the bottom of the final draft document or whatever you write on and then when you get to it you get rid of it Yes. yes And you're just doing that by yourself. You're not t- pitching the whole episode to anybody. No. I love it. Yeah. And, of course, once you've had a good season, as you know, they interfere with you much less. They don't. Yeah. They, they because, on the show. whole, you know, keep taking the tablets. We have a tremendous amount of freedom. They let us make the show. Yeah. And, no, and we, we had a marvelous time making it, really. And now, this, the, the new movie, The Chaperone, uh, did this come? Did you love the book? Did someone come to you with this? Was it your own? Uh, I know you'd carried it around for a while and wanted to tell it, or that's what I'd read. How did this come to be? And no, are you still that, open to ideas? You may have read that, but it's completely okay, untrue. Good. I have read it. Um, it was Elizabeth McGovern came ah. to me. She and Simon Curtis, her husband, had found the book. She found it because she was hired to read it, you know, for a talking book. Got it. And yes. as the more she read it, the more she thought, this should be a movie and I should be in it. Oh, that's great. And... Anyway, they came to me. I then um, took the book away and read it. And uh, you know that thing when you... Any book can be six different movies. And you're trying to find the movie in it that you want to tell. And And that would work with Elizabeth. And that would work for Elizabeth. And I found 
it was that moment in New York, that journey to New York, which changed them both, and they both changed each other. And there was something I liked very much about that. I also liked periods of change. The 20s was a fantastic period of change, when really women left the 19th century and entered the 20th in a space of 10 years. Uh, and uh, that was extraordinary to me. Um, I love the whole business of when people take possession of their own lives, as we were talking about earlier, uh, and they and they make a new life for themselves. And that is the arc of the Norma character played by Elizabeth. I love the mixture of fact and fiction because the whole of Louise Brooks's story uh, in, the, in the film or in the novel um, is uh, completely true. She came to New York to study dance with the Dennis Shawn Became dancers. a gigantic star. She, she went to Ziegfeld, she went to Hollywood, she became a big star. And, and Laura Moriarty took all of that and it's all completely true. The people running Dennis Shawn, everything is true. Yeah. But we know she came with a chaperone. They don't know what the well, chaperone. You don't know anything about anything the chaperone, about which gives you great freedom and also this specific of what really happened. Yeah. So, and you still like to get a project from someone else as opposed to generating your own idea. Do you still write on spec ever? Um, I, I don't know that I write on spec much, but I, I like a good project however it comes to me, really. Yes, yes. Uh, whether it's adaptation or original or, you know, whatever. And if... if Someone comes, I mean... I know you don't ever have to write on spec. I find sometimes that writing on spec is so free. Well, in a sense, this was written on spec because we didn't know how we were going to make it. Yeah, then, yes, right. Uh, and, 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 or, or indeed, if we were going to be able to make it. So in that sense, this was an on spec, but it just really appealed to me. And I could see it working very well with Elizabeth. Uh, and I'm very pleased with the film. Well, it's wonderful it that it played great at the L.A. Film Festival, and now it's actually coming out in theaters, which is a rare thing. Uh, this Friday night, which is, what's the date this Friday night? Is it the 29th? <laughs> Four days from now, yeah. I think it's Friday the 29th. Last, uh, just a last couple of questions, speed round, sort of. Um, with all that you have to manage, uh, how do you run your daily schedule? When do you write? Um, I do. I work uh, all the time, really, which is silly. I don't. I haven't got the balance right at all. You don't just wake up and write. Uh, no, I have breakfast. I've got to have a proper breakfast and read the paper. I can't be hurried out of that. But then I write till lunch, have lunch, write until evening. So I'm not. I'm, I don't go through the night. I'm not Edgar Allan Poe. I, I stop at about seven or eight. But in London, of course, that's more difficult because you've got meetings and you've got to do this, you've got to do that. But but on the whole, I I write. At some point every day. And I always say to beginners or people trying to get started, don't wait until you're in the mood. If you wait till you're in the mood, you'll never finish anything. Well, that's as good a place to end as any. If you wait until you're in the mood, you'll never finish anything. You might not even start anything. Well. You know? Julian Fellows, thank you so much for being here on The Moment. People, go see the movie if you haven't caught up on Downton Abbey, which is my wife's... My wife, I'll say, that was... I watched it after her. She... It was true appointment viewing in our house when it was in America. Uh -huh. I mean, she was, I had to leave the room because I couldn't, <laughs> she couldn't have me say, couldn't I, watch it. I just couldn't speak a word. <laughs> well, what I do find fascinating is that, and I think it's great in the world is your obsessions and my obsessions are almost completely different. And I love, but I admire so much the way that you throw yourself into your work. The, uh, and so your work has that quality. And the reason it's watchable to me, the reason I love Downton also is I feel how much it matters to you. I feel how you translate your obsession into something that we could love. But I love what you do. I love your obsession with bad money. 
Yes. Oh, I have a big obsession with bad money. Thank you. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's an evergreen. I mean, yeah. that's, that's as, as long as, as time. I think the, 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 um, even when I would read Thackeray, like the, the questions of, other than Jane Austen, that stuff mostly loses me and as a concept. I'm much like Damien. I think I'm, I'm, I'm here. Uh, but when it's done well, I love it. And it makes me really want to you know, dive in. So thank you for doing what you do, and, and thank you for coming here, Julian. It's been great. good money and bad money. Sure. Fine. <laughs> good money. Well, old money and new money. I did, I've got nothing against new money. <laughs> that's, that's clear. All right, everybody. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Uh, Julian's not, you're not on Twitter or anything, are you? No, of course not. All right. People can't find you on social media. You're not, you're not taking Insta pictures of... Uh, I've got two impersonators. And every now and then, my son re- reveals one or other of what they've said. Oh, that's funny. So you, you can't just go watch his stuff in the theater. It'll be great. All right. Thanks, man. Take care. Bye.